Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Last Sunday of the church year, this is it. Next time you come back, it's Advent, a new church year. Lord Jesus Christ, before whose judgment seat we must all appear and give account of the things done in the body, grant we beg you that when the books are opened on that day, the faces of your servants may not be ashamed through the merits of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> There's probably a sin <clears throat> when Bukes makes me feel that good about the last Sunday of the church year, but of course you know it should be all about going straight to hell and gnashing your teeth. So that was a very interesting, uh, it was very well played. Uh, and that service, the service that we just had, that should be kind of the baseline service for whatever we do at St. John. It should be that good. The feel was good. You were all ready to go. The choir paid attention. Everything was, you know, that's the sort of thing where you come and forget the service and it's just genius. So that's how it should feel every week. And it was, it was very, very well done this morning. So thanks for that. All right, this is just going to be a train wreck this morning because what's happened is, is I've got two long outlines written. I've done about 20% of one of them. I'm already more interested in doing the next one. <laughs> And there's actually five or six handouts. So here's the great news, though. There's nothing better than waking up on a Saturday morning, having a cup of coffee, opening the Wall Street Journal, and realizing that this Bible study is two weeks ahead of them. Okay? So this is great. When you get, we just began to talk about this, when you get this, in praise of, right, gentle apologia. This is exactly what we're doing. We've been talking about this for two months. Uh, And this is genius stuff. So what's happened is, is we've got uh, about five or six different things on the table. What I'm going to do is do a bunch of them, uh, and then I'm going to come back in two weeks and try to knit them all together. Why two weeks? Because next week, everybody's gone, there's no Sunday school, so there's no Bible study. So next week, have a cup of coffee. The week after that, um, a young Spanish seminarian will be here, Santiago Kainbaum. He'll be here with Dr. Just. He's going to help in the liturgy here. He's going to preach in West Chicago in Spanish for, for Pastor Gady. Uh, so we'll have him and we'll take a collection for him. I mean, and if you're looking for another reason to be generous around Christmas, I mean, their, their family is from Spain. They're going to be here for four years. They literally have their, you know, I know that they have their finances budgeted down to the dollar. So they're going to come here. We're actually going to put them uh, in a hotel in Chicago. They've got little kids. They've never been to Chicago. We're going to put them in a hotel in Chicago for a couple of days. So they can see the city, see the lights, have some fun. I think we're going to send the Gaties down to, to stay overnight one of those nights and take them out to dinner so that that connection between Fred and Val and Santiago can be made because in some ways the Spanish mission is a little like what Paul Finn was like when he was going to Ghana. There was nothing there and then there was some, suddenly something there because you all were so generous. I mean, you who were new, this congregation really started the Lutheran Church in Ghana and poured hundreds of thousands of dollars in the in 1970s kind of dollars into that, you know, and look what it is now. And Paul's, you know, he's old, but he's still alive and still going. In the same way Spain looks like that, you know, when they can say, well, we just celebra- celebrated the first Lutheran Mass in 400 years that, that, that we know of. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. So anyway, so next week, no Bible study. Take a week off. The next week, please come back for, for um, the seminarian, Santiago, and for Dr. Just. And they'll be at the altar, and they'll be around. Then he'll go out and preach for Fred Gady. And we'll, then we're going to bundle things up and come back. So having said all of that, I just want to give you some basic things that we, we might knit together um, so that we can talk about it really coherently when we go forward. So let me just give you the broad picture. For years and years and years and years, we've talked about Christ and Scripture and prayer and the Eucharist. 
and being really, really generous to other people, tithing and giving alms. By the way, uh, money that you put in the basket today will go for Christmas sharing. I think you heard me say last week we're assigned 600 people. We'll probably give away forty dollars or $50,000 worth of um, stuff over the weekend, a couple of weeks out. So be generous, bring your stuff, volunteer, work the day, come if you speak, especially if you speak another language. We've had sometimes 13, 14 language groups. So, you know, it's a reason to be very generous. Tithe, give alms. Be kind. Be merciful to other people. You notice this is titled a gentle apologetics, a gentle expression of faith, right? And then sort of the last thing, given a winsome witness, which Christians find so hard, but you need not find it hard. And one of the very interesting things about talking to you over the past couple of weeks is you've been crazy enough to try this. You've tried to push the darkness. You pushed on the darkness. You leaned on it. Some of you have actually thrown a sharp elbow or two. And when you do that, when you push on the darkness, what happens? The darkness pushes back. Everybody knows this. This is simple Einstein stuff, okay? So um, you've got to pay attention to this. However, don't be discouraged because someday it'll be not just the last Sunday of the church year. It'll be the last Sunday of all the Sundays. And the little baby Jesus will come back and he will sort it all out. And life will be good, which is the reason you can live hopefully. So there are so many things to talk about, Okay. Uh, If you have both of those outlines available, you might sort of pull them up side by side. So I've got one which has the wrong date but the right number. You've got one that, uh, and I'm sorry about that, sometimes, you know, cutting and pasting and writing things up. So you have one that says, uh, I don't know, is it number seven? Is that the one? And then there's maybe number eight as well? Seven and eight. Ah, way, Mr. Hecht. You're a completely reliable man. Okay, so... On the one that says number seven, at point number nine, there's a long bit from First Peter. You remember this is uh, a translation from Eugene Peterson because you have another translation. We've been talking about a translation that comes easily off your lips, right? But this doesn't even have verse numbers, but if you wander down about 57% of the way to the paragraph that says, be ready to speak up. You got that? Some of you quoted that from memory last week as be ready to give a good defense. And we talked a little bit about defense and offense. Hey, here's an interesting thing. That word, be ready to speak up, is exactly the same word that's in the title here. Apologia. So an apologetic, we know this normally as an apology, to say I'm sorry. You know, that's one way the word can be used or one root for the word. But in another way, it can just mean an explanation of why you're doing what you're doing. So, I mean, here's the text that be ready to gently explain what you're doing to anyone who asks, or tell anyone who asks. The word there is logos, which is the big word for word. In the the beginning was the word, right? And then also, it just means to give a statement. It doesn't mean to poke somebody else in the eye. It means to just be able to sort of very gently talk about what it is that you believe. Now, here's the thing. Immediately... In a room full of overachievers, everything clicks in, and you want to have everything down to the last jot and tittle, right? And if you don't have everything down to the last jot and tittle, what could happen to you? People might not like you. You might be embarrassed. Something might go wrong. People might think ill of you. People might think you're a stupid, and you might end up being a dork. We've already talked about this, right? You know, so the first rule of this is don't be a dork. We talked about this. So easy to be a dork. So... 
here's the thing, we just want to sort of work through this and I want to try to relieve some of the pressure that you might feel because really, frankly, such a little bit of this is your work and such a lot of this is the Holy Spirit's work. In fact, as you always know, we don't run by our own steam and any good we do is empowered by the Holy Spirit, you know, energized by the Holy Spirit. We spent a whole year on that last year talking about the virtues that are put into us and energized by the Holy Spirit. It's remarkable stuff. And in the end, it all gets forgiven anyway. Last Sunday, the church here, where everything is forgiven, which is why Jesus can speak so nicely about you. And your Heavenly Father loves you, right? Because even your best works are forgiven. So here's the thing. If we can just relax and be kind. So I give you then uh, the first of the articles. Now, Ted Kahn sent me this. I love you when you send me things. Um, Business Insider. What Ted Kahn, psychology guy over at the college, is doing reading the Business Insider? I have no idea. But uh, you have this long, long thing. Now, this is very interesting. This was written as, it's about relationships, particularly about marriages and why marriages last and how you can predict if marriages will last. But this is basically about being kind. Um, maybe you're more comfortable if you have a scientist who's telling you that it's all work, t- telling you that it all works. If you'll take that, just pick it up in your hand. I just want to read a couple of places to you, okay? If you pick that up, and if you go to what says page three of seven on the top, okay? This is extraordinarily important, especially for how you treat other people. It's not just about your marriage, it's about everything. So you see it's three of seven. Throughout the day, ah, sorry, you might have to turn one page back just to set it up. So look at two, just above the picture. So the guy is looking at why marriages that work and marriages that don't work. Look at just above the picture. This is for people where their marriages don't work. Even when they were talking about pleasant or mundane facts of their relationships, they were prepared to attack and be attacked. Now, they had electrodes on their head so they could see what was going on. This is the problem I would suggest to you with a Christian witness. So we're trying to completely alter this stance. Because what happens is you wander in the world and sometimes you don't feel quite prepared and you know, sometimes you know that people might be coming at you and, and things are not going quite as well as they used to for Christians. You used to be a Christian everybody would sort of, and now it's like, oof, you know, right? So if you go with a mindset of that you're ready, you're prepared to attack and be attacked, It's extraordinarily difficult to be kind. In fact, here's the scientific data that it submarines the relationship. It's true for your marriage, but it's also true for other things. This sent their heart rate soaring and made them more aggressive toward each other, right? Now turn the page. Two down. Throughout the day, partners would make requests for connection, what Gottman calls bids. For example, the husband might say... Look at the beautiful bird outside. He's not just commenting on the bird, much like you'd say, look at the little baby Jesus. He's not just commenting on the bird. He's requesting a response, a sign of interest or support. You remember we talked about this? Being kind is to be present, is to be interested. Right? We talked about this, to be calm, to be quiet. It's a completely different paradigm that's been used over the last four or five decades of the church where everybody was in your face asking you to decide for something. That is not kindness. People who turned toward their partners in the study responded by engaging the bidder, showing interest and support. Those who didn't, those who turned away, would not respond or would respond minimally. Stop interrupting me. The next one is the very interesting paragraph. 
these bidding interactions had profound effects on marital well-being. Couples who had divorced after a six-year follow-up had turned toward bids 33% of the time. So seven and ten times when your wife says, how about this, and you go, I'm reading the paper. Now, frankly, you didn't need a study to tell you this, right? All right. (laughs) Couples who were still together after six years had a turn toward bid 87% of the time. Happy wife, happy life, you know. (laughs) But here's the thing. This carries over into relationships with other people. If you're not present, if you're not interested, if you're not kindly engaged, you're not very useful. It just is the way it is, right? The Lord can't make very good use of you. Yes, Mrs. King, you're a nice woman. Your husband's a nice man. What do you want to say nice about him? Well, I'm not going to talk to him. I was going to... Whoa, that really got you. See what I mean? Three and ten, three and ten. No, give, give uh, give me something in the seven and ten variety. What do you say? Yes, here's what you have to understand, Mrs. King. This is so, I say this in the presence of my dear children who don't come home very much. <laughs> here is the thing um, they're different. <laughs> so they would have a different sense of bid and engagement because I would get, if, I guess if you had talked to anybody under the age of about 24, they would think that their bid and engagement, via text, for example, is just as valid, or perhaps more valid, than when your husband leans over to kiss you on the cheek. Just saying. So you have to think about, people are different, right? And people are gay. So it's, it, it's subjective, but it's still real. Okay? Now, the problem is going to be you and your kids, right? Because they're texting you, and you're saying, yeah. right? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you can adjust, but we just have to, it's, in life, it's very important to let people say what they want to say about themselves and define their own lives insofar as we are able, right? Let them go. So next time your kid texts you and says you, they love you, you text them right back and say, you know, right back at you, okay? See what happens. Let me know. You'll probably get a bigger Christmas present. <laughs> yes, my friend. So when you're talking about the people that are angry, like, for example, this past week I saw two conversations where they're atheists and they're, I just can't stand when people tell me I'm going to go to hell, I'm not a bad person. You're at that point, how do you respond with kindness? Because we're not to the point where they're asking us. Like last week you said, oh, hey, this works for me. There's that transition period where you only have a really short amount of time to say something. Because they, they really don't want to listen to you say anything. They're not asking How do you do you have um, do you have your outline from number seven? Do you have number seven outline? The answer is just above number eight. Already there. Do you have an outline for number seven? Have your husband show you. You got la- this. So this isn't this week's outline. You got last week's outline. Really? It's there. Might be one back there. It's this one right here. This is it right here. Right here. The answer is you need to go to the movies more. You see this? Got it? You're not laughing because apparently you've never seen Talladega Nights. You haven't? Let me suggest that you forget about the turkey and you go to the movies on Thursday. I think you need to introduce them to the dear eight pounds, six pounds newborn infant Jesus. 
Because here's the thing. This, of course, is what people think about Christians. This is, this is exactly what we're talking about, which is, what do they presume about you? <laughs> we did not get that far. But, this is, I, I, but I gave you a disclaimer and a full refund about that. I said, I said, you know, hey, this is all, all the parts are going to come together in a couple of weeks. Here's the thing. There's so many things that we have, <clears throat> we have a lot of windows open right now, okay? There's a lot of, you know, it gets like your big screen. There's a lot of things going on. So here's the point. You don't, don't be what people expect you to be. What do people expect from Christians? How Christians have been painted? Intolerant, angry, you know, sort of pushing the point home. You know, here's the thing. There isn't any point. In fact, that doesn't help the work of the church much at all. There's been enough anger built up over the last, oh, I don't know, seven centuries of the church to last for, let's say, the next 11 centuries. So here's the thing. My, my advice to you would be, um, be very, very... We read a couple of Jesus stories to start. We're going to read a couple more where Jesus bumped into really big sinners um, and really big outcasts. And how does Jesus deal with them? He doesn't even really notice. And he doesn't actually sort of um, kind of put himself upon people. In fact, he just sort of hangs around until somebody says, anybody got a wrench? Right? He just sort of bides his time. This incessant push on you to get somebody to decide for Jesus in Wheaton, Illinois, is not very helpful in terms of doing the church. Assisi, Francis of Assisi, you know, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. There's an awful lot going on here, okay? So what I would say to you in that conversation is, the first thing is not to be the person that those persons think you are. That would be my first advice to you. So actually, we might as well do this page because this is just about where we were. Jesus is much more clever than we are, okay? So um, just at number seven, you know, Jesus says, Matthew 10, 16, hey, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. This is not a very attractive invitation, by the way. I mean, very few people hit this, this on LinkedIn. Uh, looking for sheep to go among wolves. No experience necessary. But really interesting, what Jesus says is, what does Jesus say? To be wise and to be innocent. To be clever and to be kind. That's what Jesus says here. And all I'm, everything we'll probably do all year is bundled up just in that one sentence. The world is a dark place and getting darker. Christians have fallen out of favor. If the things that were happening to all other people were happening, I mean, all the things that are happening to Christians now that barely get reported, I mean, they barely get attention, right? Now, there's a couple of ways you can engage this. One, you can sort of pound and scream, or you can sort of act in the image of Jesus, who very rarely pounded and screamed. In fact, the only time Jesus pounded and screamed, it usually had to do with people who were already in the church, interestingly enough, right? So we could sort of go through those one by one, but I want to sort of take you on a different, I'm, I'm trying to take you on sort of a different path. What I want to do is have us engage the things that will work in any circumstance. So what did we talk about? We talked about being present to people, and when you're present, being kind to people. And being kind to people actually means listening rather than talking, and eventually opportunity presents itself. And when opportunity presents itself, don't be shy. And we're kind of at the don't be shy point. We're just, just, we're just kind of got to the don't be shy point, but we're just at the don't be shy point, okay? 
And there's a bunch of things to think about that all come under this notion of giving a gentle apologetic. I am all over these two outlines, but the reason for that is that it, it, it doesn't really matter. It's all going to come out in the same place, okay? All right, let me just, I'm just going to go from the conversations I've had in emails over the past week. I'm giving you this, um, I actually have this in the outline I gave you for today. It's, this is point six and seven, but I'm going to do them as seven and six. One of the really interesting things I've found in talking to you is people are afraid they're going to get embarrassed. People are afraid they're going to get embarrassed because you haven't basically you know, been to seminary or you haven't read a lot of books on philosophy or you haven't sort of studied your line so that you're eager and ready to attack. What I'd suggest to you is, is go home and watch the bears instead. Okay? Okay, let me think of something else you should do with your time. Um, <laughs> So I think, I think for you, who are very, you're very bright, you're very accomplished, and when you go to work, I mean, there's not a person in this room, when they go to work, who doesn't feel like they're going to dominate the conversation. Believe me, I know you. You all have something to say. All right? That's good. But the thing is, is you're also clever enough to not get outside your depth. Okay? Just a very, very gentle... Just a very, very gentle explanation of how thinking works. Okay? So when I was a boy, I worked in my dad's shop. In my dad's shop was this cool thing. I don't know if you ever, you know, it was sheet metal and tools and heavy things that you have to weigh often. You charge by the pound or send them. You know, there's a square on the floor. You've seen this. And it's a, it's a scale, right? You step on the scale, and it's built into the wall. And you know how this works. There's the weight that hangs down like this, right? And, you know, this out here, and you keep sliding the thing down. But eventually, you know, if things get too heavy, you have to put more weights on to make it read correctly. You know what I'm talking about? You got this, right? It's exactly how thinking works. People make too big a deal of how thinking... Now, it's very difficult to think clearly. But this is how thinking works. It works this way in every venue. And this is why you need not be afraid. All thinking is is that somebody makes a statement, an apologia, a statement, a, a sentence, and I'll just put it as an assertion, okay? And then, normally, people give reasons for how, why they believe what they believe, right? And there are a range of reasons that can be given for any proposition, for any assertion, and people usually choose them. They add weights to it. So this one is really important to me. And this one is not quite as important. This one is really, really important. And I don't believe this one at all. Here's the problem with you and other people. The things that you think are terribly, terribly important are regularly not important to other people. Right? Now, one of the problems in our age is, and this is the thing I gave you, it's an unfortunate title, the thing I gave from the Wall Street Journal where it says liberals are destroying liberalism. Immediately that casts it as a political debate. It's not a political debate at all. That title can be saved if you use liberal in the sense that Plato would use it, for example, or the way that it's been used in Western culture, which is to be open-minded. So the liberal arts was, it was the open arts. It was to think clearly and gather a lot of information. You know, it was, it was to be somebody who was engaged. So hear it in that sense, okay? The problem with that article, and the problem, frankly, in academia and higher education, 
is that there are things that can no longer be said. When things can no longer be said, they can no longer be valued, and that's fascist. So once upon a time, long ago, far away, when I was in a PhD seminar at Princeton Seminary, I innocently slammed the brakes on the whole thing by simply quoting Plato's Republic where it said, women and slaves don't have souls. Now here's the thing. I didn't make the assertion. I simply quoted the text. The fact that it was in the text. In fact, I'm actually one who thinks that women and slaves do have souls, actually. But in the Republic, he thinks they don't have souls and therefore they can't be full members of society. It's a rational argument, but it's got some wrong premises. You would have thought that I poured gasoline around the room and lit a match, okay? But that's the way the world is. Unfortunately, as soon as you start to close off speech for people, you close off thinking, and it is a will to power, which is, at least in academics, and then it's then, it usually starts in academics first, and then it comes to politics, and then it comes mainstream. The problem is, is when that happens, you have a fascist society. When people tell you what you can and cannot say, and they tell you um, that you must listen and obey, you're in grave, grave danger, okay? So what I've talked about the past couple of weeks is trying to recover the notion that civility means, this is what we did with the naked lesbian nuns the first week, right? Civility means, go back and get it if you don't have it. Uh, <laughs> civility means, civility means, okay, it means that you may utterly disagree with those people. You may utterly disagree with those people. But if you assault them, if you shout them down, if you refuse to listen, one is you're uncivil, and two, you're a moron in terms of the church. Because what does Jesus do when he runs into, you know, a bunch of bare-chested lesbians dressed as nuns? What does Jesus do? He has lunch. And that's the difference between you and me and Jesus and me and other people. Jesus is extraordinarily calm with sinners. Jesus is extraordinarily calm with people who disagree with him. They're nailing him to the cross. He's like, Father, forgive them. The people he gets crabby about are church people, people who set up shop in the church and try to control other people. That's what Jesus gets angry with. Anyway, the point of this is um, civility, thinking works in this way. And you just have to recognize that some things like the incarnation, are extraordinarily important to you. To people who don't believe, it's not important at all. Um, in fact, I think I gave you there's some stuff about the new atheism. Oh, I gave you that two weeks ago, the stuff about the new atheism, where they're stealing our stuff, right? So the new atheism, one of the things that's interesting is that they think that, um, they think that, that uh, they think community is important. And so that they open up in old churches is just the next most natural thing, Okay. Now, to continue to live in the society you live in, it's terribly important that people remain civil, which means outlier voices need to be heard. Here's the problem for you and for me. Christianity is becoming an outlier voice, and it will become more of an outlier voice. Okay? Here's the thing. It actually doesn't matter. You know why you can live in hope? Because Jesus is going to square it up all up on the last day. Now, what I'm, what I'm suggesting to you is you make the argument you make with great kindness and great authenticity. Which is, is, if you're always yelling at people, that's not the way of Jesus. Or if you're a miser, why should anybody pay attention to you? If you're not willing to help the poor, you know, if you're not willing to heal the sick, what's the point? Because that's what Jesus did, okay? And this is why the church has lost ground. This is why the new pope is so popular. 
right? Now, people have all kinds, they put all kinds of stuff on him. They put it, their own agendas on him all the time. But the truth is, the guy visibly cares for the poor. At his birthday party, he goes outside the door and he invites in the four homeless guys lying at the door, come have a slice of cake. That's the way the church works. So thinking just works like this. You just stack up as much of this, and the more of this you got, the better argument you have, right? But just hear this in the right way. You do not have to close the sale. I've been saying this from the first week. You do not have to close the sale. Your job is not to close the sale. Small catechism, third article, you can't close the sale. It's the Holy Spirit who calls, gathers, and enlightens, sanctifies. It's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts. You can't talk anybody into being a Christian. You can give a very nice pointer toward Jesus who is merciful and kind, present and forgiving. Right? You, you give a very, and, that, and then your work is done. Then your work is done. Now, here's the thing about this. Um, you're bright people, and you like to pursue. And frankly, there's a couple of you who actually like to win. Oh, I thought that would be funnier. Okay, so um, let me just suggest to you that there's a couple of things that you can do. So let's just pick up the bit from the Wall Street Journal, okay? So, so this is, it was just so, it was so refreshing to pick this up yesterday morning in the book review, right? Because this is exactly what we're talking about. Before I read that, I just want to say one thing. I think I've said this to you before. One of the great rookie mistakes I made being a pastor was, I just thought if I thought everything clearly and I spoke everything clearly, you all would just follow along, right? Woe is me, all right? Because what, what do I presume? I presume people are rational, and I presume they're most moved by rational things, which, of course, is completely wrong. I should have paid more attention to Plato. People are moved as much by their hearts as they are by their heads. Yes, my friend. So if you're talking about dropping plates onto the, onto the scale there... If I'm talking about... Plates, talking plates, yes, right. Building up your argument. Right. At the end of the day, I would think that you don't want to try to continue to reason your way and quote scripture your way into making them see your point of view because at the end of the day, faith, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't count by, by stacking up weights. The truth, the belief that the Bible is the inspired word of God and it gives us the, the reason to live our lives the way we live our lives is Genius. Okay, so there's like nine things going on in that question, okay? <laughs> Which is just the way it should be because, you know. All right, so here's the thing. Why do you use thinking? There's two primary reasons in an apologetic way to use it. One is to break down objections. So people always say, for example, um, the church hates women because, for example, we don't ordain women. Real honestly, you read the history of the church, it was the church who advanced many causes for women long before anybody else, for example, education or respect or dignity at death or childbirth or care, right? Or the church doesn't care for the poor. You know what? You know where hospitals came from? You know what was remarkable about in, the er- in early times about the church? It was the Christians who gathered up the dead body because they believed in creation, so they believed in the dignity of the body, so they believed in a proper burial, Right? So part of it is you can use reason to break down objections. Now, the other side of that coin is, I would say to you, if we're jerks, right, if we're dorks, we talked about this, 
If we don't tithe, if we don't give alms, if we're always angry, if we're always looking for a fight, if we oppress other people, if we don't listen well, then we are who people say we are, right? Don't be who people say we are, who people think we are. My simple, you don't have to, but that's too much to remember. So my simple thing is, be kind. We know how to be kind, right? So one reason is you break down objections when you aren't what people say, who people say you are. You break down objections, right? That's one reason rationality works. Another is you can start to give reasons for what you believe. Now here's the thing. Here's the mistake, one mistake that people make in thinking. People think that to be rational is to lock everything down. Okay? All you need to know is, you remember that little thing they landed on the comet that's zipping around? Okay? Here's one of the things that's going to happen. Je predict. I'm a prophet. Stone me if I'm wrong. This is what's going to happen. Some scientist is going to adjust an estimation by, oh, 100 million or maybe a billion years based on data that comes back from there. I wish I could be wrong regularly by a billion years. <laughs> it's just, that's not to be against science. It's just to say, if you think everything is locked down, I mean, it's one thing to have rich rain gap your spark plugs. It is quite another thing to try to, you know, estimate how the universe was put together. One of them is pretty solid. If you need to go over and, you know, hold on to the spark plug, Rich will show you, you know. Where, uh, but see, see, people think, we have this illusion that in all things, thinking is completely locked down. It is not completely locked down. This is what it is to be reasonable, to give reasons. And then I gave you also to conclude your presuppositions. So you, you, create, you create a way of thinking and you follow it. You basic, this is thinking, basically. You follow the directions and you give reasons. Now, people use different sets of directions. And I gave you the example here of field hockey and um, golf, I think. Both have a stick and a ball, but the rules are very, very different, right? So you have to know the rules. You have to think clearly about it. You need to express yourself. But if you think things get locked down, in most, in most things, they do not get locked down. And to make the demand of Christians that they have to lock down, that they have to show it. So let me just give you the first one, the easiest one, which is, if I had a marker, my kingdom for a marker. All right, so here's the thing. If you're a scientist, for example, this is, by the way, not to bust on science. The whole back and forth between science and Christianity is just a... I mean, it's at the highest levels of academia, the, the things, things fit together, science and philosophy and, and religion. They, people are asking about the same question about origins and powers and starts. So, but just, if you say you have a closed system, right? This is, this is what the system looks like, right? So there's no room for God, no room for the transcendent. That's fine. Reason all day long you want in there. If you try to give an answer about God into that system, people will just simply say, you're not playing by the rules. The problem is people really usually do it with a lot of angst and anger. So I, I gave you the example last week. We've always got some high school kid who goes in and like stands up and takes on their biology teacher and gets an F for the term. And then they come weeping to us and say, what have I done? And what I usually say is, well, you were an idiot. That's what you've done. <laughs> because here's the thing, believing is different than knowing. I think I told you once that I had... Uh, this is the, the great example in theology is, is, is criticism of the scriptures, historical criticism of the scriptures, where I knew a man who was at Cambridge who came in as an inspired, inerrant word of God guy that you, and he had a, he had a New Testament professor who was a hard-nosed um, historical critic, and by the end of the term, the tutor was in fear 
for the man's soul. Now, why is that? Because he so had learned everything that had happened. There's a lot of things you know and have to know. You don't have to believe them, but you do have to know them, right? So you have to learn how reasoning works. They're not going to let you inject God into the system. But as I you know, wrote on my dissertation exams at Princeton, you know, the limits of your system are not God's limits. Your knowing doesn't impose on God's knowing. It doesn't confine God's knowing. Your action doesn't confine God's action. So in my system, God is engaged all the time. Now, you can take it or leave it. But I can explain an awful lot of things because I have a transcendent God who's at work in the world for me, not against me. A lot of things make sense. So just, just take, this, um, take this Wall Street Journal article. He's better at it than I am. See, this, um, the debate between science and religion has reached a glowing standstill. Christianity's defenders seek to poke holes in the logic and evidence of evolutionary materialism, even as Darwinian scientists together refuse to acknowledge that there's even a debate, right? Why? Because they have a closed system and everything works inside their closed system. It's fine. It works. You adjust things by a million or a billion years, it all works out. The new atheists, meanwhile, we talked about these two weeks ago, a confederation of atheists' most eloquent popularizers, have convinced their many readers, and this is why you kind of feel bad sometimes, that the chief impediment to global peace and stability is religious belief. This is really an interesting thing right now. That religious belief is, um, the thing I gave you ends with saying, there's terrorism in the Middle East because there's Christian churches in America. It's very interesting. Okay. It's good and right to debate questions like the world's origins, of course, but those questions are pretty far removed from the experience of most people. Okay. Now, basically what this guy does, and he's a bright boy, law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. That's an Ivy. He's sort of, you know, bright boy. He suggests changing the subject. If we shift from origins to the world as we actually experience it, we need to explain sensations like, look at this, this is what we always talk about, our sense of beauty and evil, right? These are the four things we always talk about. Community, <laughs> beauty, justice, mercy, and spirituality, Christology. This is two of the four things already. Sense of beauty and evil, as well as the puzzles of morals and law, each, and now I've punched a hole through this, I think it says that the areas of experience contain paradoxes, real or apparent contradictions, that if we're honest, they're hard to make sense of. Mr. Skeel's gentle contention is that the ancient creed of Christianity reckons with each in surprisingly satisfying ways. Now here's the thing. Satisfying is enough. To give reasons is to be reasonable. I can't believe we're done already. Just take this. Consider beauty. Some famously Gould have asserted that the human ability to produce and appreciate beauty is a fortunate but not especially useful byproduct of natural selection. Others, for example, Pinker, surmise that the beauty signified food and fertile vegetation or earliest ancestors, so it's an evolutionary argument. Skeel emphasizes something different about beauty. It's rare and elusive. All of us, he asserts, feel that beauty is real and that it reflects the universe as it is meant to be but that is impermanent and somehow corrupted. You can keep reading, but here's the point. The point is, you have to explain beauty in some way. And to explain it is simply to give reasons for why it's this way and not another. You can give an evolutionary reason for beauty. You absolutely can. You can also give a reason like this, because the little baby Jesus loves you. You have to be able to explain what those things are. I just want to, just, this is probably the last thing. Um, what time is it? I can't actually see. Is it quarter till? All right, so we got to go. Here's the thing. 
Um, to be reasonable is not to lock everything down tight. There's very few things that can be locked down tight, rationally. Very few things. What you normally have is a preponderance of evidence, or some very good evidence, right? You have some very good reasons for why. To be reasonable is simply to give reasons, sufficient reasons to persuade. Very few things can be locked down tightly. But if you chase the reasons that are given in Scripture, that Jesus himself gives, for example, I mean, love itself is a glorious reason. I mean, try to explain love philosophically. You can explain it by enzymes, firing, I suppose you can. But that may be the second step, not the first. Anyway, the point is there are all these things going on. We got it. There's so much to talk about here. Because, because if, you don't, if you don't think clearly about this in your place, you'll always be on the defensive. On the other hand, to say to people you know, that the little baby Jesus loves you, I mean, is really quite a remarkable, remarkable thing. Uh, you know, take this with you. Just have a look at it. But what I want to try to do is I want to try to urge you... Um, you know, to think clearly and to embrace these things, but also to have a bit more confidence as you go. So, um, all right. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.